Titus week three. Can't believe we're three weeks down, only one week left to go. I want to open with a story this morning. A story is told about Fiorello Lagordia, who, when he was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all of World War II, was, a called, was called by adoring New Yorkers the little flower because he was only five foot four and he always wore a carnation in his lapel. Now, he was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks. He raided speakeasies with the police department. He would take entire orphanages to baseball games. And whenever the New York newspapers were on strike, he would go on the radio and read the Sunday funnies to the kids. But one bitterly cold night in January of 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. He dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told Lagordia that her daughter's husband had deserted her, her daughter was sick, and her two grandchildren were starving. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. It's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the man told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. Lagordia sighed. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into his famous sombrero saying, here is the $10 fine which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered red face, turned over to a bewildered old lady who'd stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner, while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. Now that is grace. Paul describes grace in a unique and wonderful way in his letter to Titus. If you have your Bibles open with me, let's turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared <clears throat> that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. 
Grace. What do we learn from grace, about grace in Titus? We learn that grace leads to eternity. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace opens the door to eternity. It is only by the grace of God that we can have salvation. Every person needs grace because we have sinned. Paul teaches us in Romans that everyone has sinned and everyone acts in rebellion to God's will. The simple truth is, and it's a fact of life, we will all one day die. Our human nature is not eternal. But the good news is that God has given us grace and offers us salvation. Through Christ, God has made his grace known to humanity. But what is the reality of God's grace? George Sweeting defines grace this way. Grace is free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is complete, undeserved, and unmerited favor. God has given us grace because he knows we would be completely lost without it. God has shown us all mercy beyond what we can understand and far beyond what we deserve. And grace is offered to all people. God made his grace completely inclusive. Paul states the grace of God appeared to all men, which means that God has extended his call of grace to every person. There is not a single person that God does not desire to see saved and redeemed. And since God is gracious, he allows every person a choice to accept this grace or decline it. God does not force us to follow him. God's grace is a gift. It cannot be earned in any way. Salvation is a gift. And it is one that we do not deserve. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God has given each one of us a marvelous gift. Have we taken the time to accept it? But what else does grace do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace opens the door to enlightenment. The grace of God allows us to leave the old life. And Paul specifically mentions two areas that have to be dealt with. The first one, ungodliness. Essentially, ungodliness can be defined as having a lack of love for God and having no regard for God at all. Doesn't that accurately describe our modern culture? And the second one, worldly passions. These are the desires or wants of the world that have no regard or love for God. These desires or passions flow from a godless mindset or way of thinking. 
The grace of God instructs us on how to live a new life. God's grace gives us discipline. The grace of God helps us to live a life that brings glory and honor to Him. The grace of God gives us the fortitude to resist the ungodliness of this world and live a life that pleases God. God's grace gives direction. And the grace that God gives to us directs us in how we should live. And in His grace, God has supplied His Word to give us instruction and His Holy Spirit to give us personal direction. Grace brings us hope. Grace teaches hope. But what is a blessed hope? Paul uses the Greek word makarios, which we have translated blessed in English. And this word conveys a sense of happiness or joy. So literally Paul is saying that the hope of Christ's return should make us happy and joyful. Does the thought of Christ's return make you happy and joyful? And there are three key reasons for this happy hope. The first one, Christ's personal presence. There will come a day when we will be face to face with Christ and dwell in his presence. That's a reason for being joyful and happy. The second one, redemption from our sinful nature. When Christ returns, the battle with sin will be completely won. There will be no more sin. Another reason to be joyful and happy. And the third one, restoration of creation. The promise of God is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And this means that God will make all things new and that the entire world will be redeemed. Joyful and happy? I think so. The grace of God is complete in Christ's return. God will redeem this lost world completely when Christ returns. And we need to notice that in this portion of scripture, Paul gives proper divinity to Jesus. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is clearly qualifying the reality of our hope with the fact that Jesus is God. But grace also leads to empowerment. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace opens the door to empowerment. The grace of God brings us redemption. Christ was the sacrifice for our sin. Christ gave himself willingly to be the sacrifice for our sins. Christ died so that you could be redeemed. But the re reality of redemption, the term redeem literally means to purchase release from captivity with a ransom. So what Paul is telling us is that we were slaves to our own selfishness and Jesus brought us to set us free. And that same grace of God brings us purification, which is a result of redemption. Not only does Christ buy us back from the results of sin, but he also purifies us from the influences of sin. And the supply of grace, the redemption supplies grace for your past, and purification gives us grace for today and for all our todays. And grace brings new purpose in life. Grace gives us a place with God. We are God's people. By God's grace, we become his own special people. Throughout the Bible, we see God at work to bring his people back to him and to set them for a special purpose, service in his kingdom. And that's sanctification. 
The term sanctified refers to something being set aside for special use. And it was specifically used for items used in the temple. But it's used on us when we accept God's grace. We are sanctified. We are set aside for special use. Grace gives us proper motivation. When we realize all that Christ has done for us, it stirs a passion in our souls to serve him. We are called to serve Christ to share the news of all that he's done for us. But what's the rationale for our service? Our motivation for serving Christ does not come from some duty or obligation, but rather it should flow from a grateful heart. Our service comes from an understanding of what Christ did for us. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker commented on the poor condition of children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself. Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town. Can you just imagine? People flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. Can you imagine how full that service would have been? And here's what he said. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. And this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. The crowd was delighted. The ushers had to empty the collection plates three times. Later that week, there was a knock on Parker's study door. It was Charles Spurgeon, and he said these words. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. A.W. Tozer in Knowledge of the Holy likens the Christian life to traveling on an ocean liner. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. On board, there are scores of passengers. These are not in chains, neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. The degree of enjoyment during the voyage will be determined by the choices they make. And we need to understand that choice determines character. The choices you make as a chosen child of God will determine the direction, happiness, and success of your spiritual life. All that God has given to us is by his grace. His grace gives us what we need, not what we deserve. Today is the day to admit the simple fact that we are in need of God's grace. And what will he do? He will pour it into our lives. God's indwelling grace is active. It leads us and influences us. It brings change. The grace that results in salvation should be continuing to have a profound effect 
upon our hearts. And while eagerly looking ahead to the return of Christ, we are to turn away from ungodliness. We are to turn to holiness and we are to do good works. And this is the result, the manifestation of saving grace. So my challenge this morning is take account in your life, in your mind, in your heart, and see if you find the results of saving grace. Examine yourself to see if you are eager to do good, if you look forward to the return of Christ, and if you avoid the sin of this present age. And my prayer for you is may the enabling grace of God keep you stabilized and firmly rooted in the love of God. Grace, unmerited and undeserved favor, given freely to each one of us. Grace, poured over each one of us, even though we're not worthy. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you to seem so inept. <laughs> Doesn't seem like enough, Lord, to say thank you for the grace that you've poured over us, for all that you've done for each one of us. Lord, you bless us each and every day, even though we don't deserve it. Father, we know that often we decline your offer of grace or we take it for granted. We abuse it. And Father, we know that you just keep pouring out more grace and more grace and more grace over each one of us. And Lord, we open our hands now to receive your grace. And Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each one of us, showing us how best we can take your saving grace into the world, bringing change, bringing hope, bringing life. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.